Merry Christmas. I just like saying it. We pray with me. Holy God, we ask that you would fill this room. This is a place in which we come to meet you. This is a place in which we come to hear your word. So now open our hearts. Open our lives. Fill us. Revive us. Restore us. And then send us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, I want to welcome you guys here. I didn't grow up in a church where we went to church on Christmas. Um, and so I was kind of excited about this, that we get to be here today. So welcome. And I want to welcome everyone who is joining online. We are thankful to have you in our midst. I read recently that to perceive Christmas through its wrappings can become more difficult as each year passes. And if I'm being honest, I had a particularly hard time getting to Christmas this year. Sure, I set up the tree and I put up the ornaments, made sure the lights looked good, bought my presents, wrapped them, but I just wasn't able to get beyond that. I mostly felt like this day was more about those things, the shopping lists and the presents. And I know that in my head it's supposed to mean so much more to me, but in my heart I just struggled to get there. And I think this happens in part because the meaning of Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus Christ, can seem to get old. I mean, how many ways over how many years can you tease out that 2,000 years ago, a child was born in a manger, and that child was none other than God himself? And I think that despite our best attempts, the story can begin to feel a little tired. It doesn't seem to be as exciting as the other wrappings and trappings of our holiday season. And there is this troubling temptation to focus instead on what is new and exciting each year. And so our annual narrative about a child born in a manger can begin to seem commonplace and ordinary. It's as if the novelty of it all is worn off. And in the competition for all that happens during this time of year, Jesus' story gets squeezed out to make room for our peppermint lattes and tacky Christmas sweaters. But the reality here is that this story is not a story that depends on our seasonal novelty. And this is a problem that we think it does. Now, it's true this story is over 2,000 years old. But we don't get to regard it as one story among others. Because it's anything but common and ordinary. And this is not a story that needs our embellishment. And it certainly doesn't need us to recast it as something new and exciting with each coming year. Because it is much more than a story. It is the truth of a God who loves us so deeply that he commits himself to us in one of the deepest ways possible. Of a God who honors his promises to us. That he would be our God and that we would be his people, that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us, and that he would redeem us from our embedded sinfulness. And he reveals this commitment to us by being born humbly in a manger. And Matthew, the writer of this text, wants us to see this truth by giving this child two very powerful names. And I believe if we meditate 
upon these names that we can come to a deeper knowledge of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. In other words, amidst the wrappings and trappings of this holiday season, focusing on these names just might let us hear that quiet, consistent heartbeat of the gospel message. But before we jump into this, I want to let you know that in the Bible, names are just not used to identify someone. In our culture, oftentimes, the name someone carries doesn't have a direct correlation to the content of their character. But in the Bible, we see a continual pattern that names carry far more significance than a simple title or designation. Instead, we can observe that they are frequently used to express the essential nature of their bearer. It's almost as if to know the name is to know the person. In the Bible, names speak to the core of a person's character. Think about Saul. When his character changed, he was renamed. Names are important in Scripture. And in our text for today, we see that the first name given to this child is Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is Greek, and it literally means Savior. This name comes from the Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. And because this story is 2,000 years old, when we hear the name Jesus, we automatically think of this small child in a manger. But I think part of what we have to do as we approach this is to ask, what did the writer of this text want us to hear when he told us that, the na- that someone with the name God saves was born? And I think that something we have to note is that for those who were living during the time of the Old Testament, they would not have heard this name as a simple pronoun to identify someone. They would have heard this as a verb. Because the verb that is closely linked with the name Joshua means God saves. And that verb is used with, for one character alone in the whole of the Old Testament. And that is God. And the genealogy that's in, this, that's in the book of Matthew immediately prior to our scripture speaks continually of how God shows up and provides salvation for his people. So as Matthew has taken us through all these names of God showing up and God providing, now we have a child who means God saves. We see through history that God continues to come as salvation for his people. And this verbal noun here is used to speak of God's saving acts within history. And we see that it is good news. The fact that God saves is the gospel of the Old Testament. And it serves as a torch that burns in the night. And now we have a child born bearing this name, Jesus. God saves. And what we can gather from this is that Jesus, this small child, will be an agent of God's salvation to us. We find here that the name Jesus is much more than a who because we cannot separate this name from the implications of what it means. Before we go there, though, I want to pause and look at the second name that we are given in this text, and that is Emmanuel. The name literally means God with us. 
And this is a summary statement for God's continual relationship with Israel and the church. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And I want to stop and pause and think about this for a minute because most other religions talk about the above us God. But in this passage, we're told that God came down to us and became like us. And this is utterly distinct on, on the scene of world religions. Most other faiths would look at us and go, no, 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 you can't do this because here's the deal. God's too holy. God's too righteous. God is way too perfect to come down to you, much less become like you. And they'd continue to say to us, you can't do this to God because you're going to make him, you're going to connect him with what's gross. You're going to diminish his glory. But in this name, Emmanuel, we say to that that we've learned to think about God very differently. Because the amazing message here is not only that God can come down to us, but that his love is so powerful and overflowing that he wants to come down to us. And that his coming doesn't diminish his glory. In fact, it's the height of his glory. We find here that he really is the humble, gracious, loving God who ever wills to be with his creatures. We also find in this name, Emmanuel, that not only does God send, because yeah, we've had angels and prophets and kings before, but the amazing message here is that God comes to us now. No longer will God speak to us through someone. He has come to us in this child. Better, he becomes. Christmas is the story of God's becoming one of us. Christmas reminds us that God very literally belittled himself to be with us. And I mean little. God could have easily come as some glorious being riding in on the clouds to save the day. And in fact, that's what Israel was looking for. Instead, he comes as an infant. He makes himself small and vulnerable and helpless to a world that he will save. Don't miss this. The heartbeat of the entire gospel is that God condescended himself to be with us. Now, some people hear me say that God condescended to us and they get offended as if somehow I'm being rude as I talk about humanity, as if I'm not being fair. And I get this reaction because we generally use this word or this term to indicate when someone has acted superior towards us, when they've been patronizing, when they've acted as if we're beneath them, And I think it's safe to say that most of us don't like being condescended to. But here, I use the word condescend very intentionally. I think it is one of the best ways we can give proper explanation to what happens when the creator of the universe comes down to be with us and then dies for us. In fact, this is how the gospel of John begins for us. In John's message about Jesus, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I like how the message has translated this when it says, God put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
God comes to be with us this day. He condescends himself so that we might know him and be saved. And it's what he does because he loves us. And as we survey this text, we find that the meaning of this day is wrapped up in these names. Jesus, Emmanuel. And this is huge. But as we come to this, I think that some questions follow. As we try to define Christmas by these two names, we begin to ask, what does it mean that he's coming to save us? Who is he saving? From what is he saving? And how will he do this? The who here that we're talking about is you, me, and the whole of creation. The work of Jesus is first and foremost a rescue mission to save all, and I mean all, that God created and loves. Sure, Jesus saves individuals. He works through them, but he saves them with and into a society to remake them into a new people. And we need to remember this as we think about what Jesus came to do, as we talk about him on this day. He became flesh so that all flesh might be saved. So while my salvation or your salvation is important, we need to remember that God is chiefly concerned with the salvation of all that he has created and all that he loves. The what that he is saving us from is sin. This is the problem that God is going to solve in Jesus, and doing this is a promise he made to us. Simply put, sin is how we miss the mark, and it, excuse me, sin is how, why we miss the mark and how we do it. The reality is we miss the mark at being who God created us to be, who God intended for us to be. And I say this and I think about it and I don't really like hearing it, but then I start reading the newspaper or I study history. I'm not going to put this on you, but when I listen to myself drive um, and then I start to realize maybe I'm missing the mark in some ways. People use the word sin to describe these individual moments in which they go about missing the mark. And this condition has unfortunate side effects because instead of trusting and taking God at God's word, we start to put our trust in other gods or in idols. And instead of loving our neighbors, we distrust and drive them away. Now the question of how God will save us from our sins is that he will die for us. In this birth narrative, in this coming the cross already begins to come into focus. Because we who know Jesus know how this story goes. We know that it ends with his death. We know that it ends with him giving his life for the whole of creation. We know that it ends on a cross. I should add here that it begins again with his resurrection. It begins again with him rising from the dead. It begins again with a new birth. Josh Gritter, an intern in our youth department, has been writing poems as his Advent devotion, and I want to share one of them with you. From the lone, cold trough, a whimper slowly resounding, the very God, the human one, the very love lay so still in bleeding water. God birthed 
amidst the swine, all birthed in suffered love. From the lone, cold cross, a whimper slowly resounding, the very God, the human one, the very love. From flesh comes bleeding water, God slain amidst the swine, all birthed in suffered love. all birthed and suffered love. We find today that this wooden and simple manger points us towards a wooden and simple cross. The manger forces us to contemplate what this small infant child will do. The manger forces us and reminds us of the length and the depth to which God is willing to go for us. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians when he says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that is the name of Jesus Christ, so that every knee should bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. To glory be God the Father. His names are Jesus, Emmanuel. But they're more than just names. These names speak to the truth and reality that was made known that day and is still being made known today. Because God still saves and God is still with us. And these names and their meaning have the power to change hearts, to redeem the broken. To revive our souls. May your Christmas be defined by this truth. Instead of all of the things that I got caught in as I tried to approach this very important and sacred day, may you wrap this day and your lives in this truth instead. That the God who saves is now with you, that he belittled himself for you that he condescended himself for your, my, and all of our sakes. May you see this as the gift that you have been given. May you take hold of it. And may the God that saves be with you this day and every day to come. Amen.